The Guardian. I first met Nicky Wire 21 years ago when the Manic Street Preachers had just released their first single. I thought their music was brilliant, but I was sure they'd burn out. Instead, they carved out a two decade career. They've released 10 original albums, become one of the biggest groups of their generation, and somehow survived the tragic disappearance of their lyricist and motive force, Richie Edwards. Their new career anthology, National Treasures, gives us a chance to talk about the last 20 years of the Manic Street Preachers and the country and culture that spawned them. The Manics have always been social and political commentators, something Nicky Wire thinks popular culture has almost totally lost. And in that context, he thinks the band now need a deep rethink, particularly given that everything they once took for granted about rock music seems almost extinct. So I wonder, can it be true? Is rock really dead? No, I wouldn't say it's dead, but it's dying very quickly, I think. No, definitely not. <laughs> it's hiding. Do you think rock music's dead? Yeah. Do you? Yeah. How come? I don't know, I don't listen to it. I've been brought up with like more R&B and rap, so yeah. Fellas with guitars never really appeal? Nah. Do you think rock music's dead? That's the question. No way. Blackstone Sherry, they're all still going. Okay. Feeder, feeder brilliant band. Yeah, never too old for rock. As soon as I hear it come on, I change channel. <laughs> It's all right. Have you ever heard Nevermind the Bollocks for the Sex Pistols? Not really, no. Really? It's not so much about the music or the meaning behind the music, but people just want to be cool. Holy Bible by the Manic Street Preachers? No. Nevermind by Nirvana? None of them. It's more about the fashion and the hipster scene and just very pretentious people. Which... <laughs> Whereas opposed to the big fuck you rock and roll should be ah, about. Ah, OK. What about the Beatles? Beatles, no. Christ, there's no hope for you. Maybe rock and roll doesn't describe what rock and roll is anymore. Do you think it's quieter than it was five or ten years ago, though? feels like the rock scene or rock yeah. music. There are people around like Morrissey and Johnny Rotten and these sort of amazing, angry, hyped up, weird people. They're around. People like that. It's just different. People that aren't angry in the same way. I think you can't, you can't just get angry and shout about stuff anymore. I wonder though, I mean, like, the Sex Pistols couldn't happen again, something like that. Yeah, it could. Really? It happens all the time. What, a group that, that half the population would take massive offence to and half people would love to pieces? One Direction? Yeah, they're not really a rock group, though, are they? No, but they've divided the population. <laughs> <laughs> Nicky Wyatt, is rock dead? I think rock, as I know and love it, does seem dormant at the moment. That exotic kind of, I want to be in that band, I want to follow their lifestyle. You know, in terms of you want to look like them, you want the haircut, you actually believe what they say. And perhaps the Libertines are the last band to do that. If you survey the landscape, there's still really good music. There's certainly good bands in their own right, but it's not the inspiration that um, that made me want to pack in football and pick up a guitar. All that's gone, you know. I mean, you've said in the recent past, I believe in the tactile nature of rock and roll. There's a generation missing out on what music meant to us. Uh, yeah. So that's more than haircuts as well, actually, isn't it? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's something very deep-seated in the sense of what people tend to sing about now is either very different or a pale shadow of what, people like you felt minded to sing about when yeah, you first picked up guitar. I think we just had such brilliant, it's a terrible word to use because they were all deeply flawed, but role models, you know. If it was Ian McCulloch or it was Morrissey, it would all lead you into a different, a, a wondrous world of discovery. You know, you're in Allen Ginsberg rap on Combat Rock by The Clash. Immediately sends you down a path to discover the beat generation. And it just, it fulfills your life. And then you read Lipstick Traces by Grail Marcus and that opens up a wondrous universe that you can pilfer and steal and use to inspire you from the situationists for everything and um, there's all those traces just do not seem apparent in, uh, in modern rock music. Another big question then which is what has gone wrong 
I think the democratization of music through the internet basically allowed everyone think thought they could be in a band. That you know, it's just like getting a job at Topshop. We'll just try <laughs> no. that out for six months. You know, we'll try being in a band, and therefore you're at such a mediocre kind of indie landfill, if you want to call it that. That you know, the system got clogged up. And are there, are there wider sort of cultural historical factors too. I mean, there must be, in the sense that, for example, the sort of defining event in the foundation of the Manic Street Preachers is the miners' strike. Yes. Right? So you cut your teeth in a much more ideological atmosphere yeah. when it was incumbent on musicians and poets and playwrights and all that to say something, yeah. whatever it was. Right. Now, whether that's about to change in the context of what's happened to the economy, we don't know. But clearly, we live in a much more sort of docile world than that. Don't yeah, we? and I think ten years of you know economic growth we, we've got to stop using the word Thatcher's children you know everything now is new new Labour's children this whole generation of kind of passive consumerism whatever you want to call it that's all it's all new Labour's we've got to forget about that we are Thatcher's children we're the ones who got inspired to kick against it everything now is different you know I think we've got to stop can't keep blaming that and what are the sort of identifying features do you think of new Labour's children um, a kind of all-encompassing virtual vanity. It's just the next stage of evolution, isn't it, virtuality? And I think people are wrapped up in... Um, I mean, consumerism for us was just a totally different concept, you know, to what it's become. It, it just... And because everyone's grown up in all those years of growth and credit and, you know, the good times, and, you know, when that's taken away, then, you know... It's obviously going to have a massive impact. But we never had anything anyway. I think the joy for us growing up was boredom became actually something you really enjoyed. It's just a wonderful thing for your imagination, the fertility of it. You know, and anyone who grew up in our age will know it was tedious, you know. <laughs> there were, you know, there weren't many options. And sometimes that's a good thing. Do you check yourself slightly in the sense that it's the role of all 40-year-olds down the ages to say music was better than this in my day. <laughs> well, I, I think pop music is probably better now. I have to, you know, it's just it's my genre that is failing badly. So rock and roll is going down the tube. Yeah, that's how I see it. And there are, you know, there's always, there's always shining lights out there and there's always bands coming up you think, like I'm obsessed with that band Scum, just for the name as much as anything, you know. Yaku sound like Sonic Youth. It's just whether there's, I guess... All the great bands were just massively ambitious to, to just to conquer the world, and that that's just that's just not there anymore. Don't Coldplay want to conquer the world? Haven't Coldplay conquered the world? Coldplay have conquered the world, yes. You know, by turning themselves into Enya. <laughs> I mean, a knock-on question from the the idea of checking yourself at your age. Also, is it strange to be a beacon of anger and dissent and all that at forty-one, forty-two? It's yeah, because you're still doing it. I mean, your last album is full of those fundamental qualities of rock and roll that you say you miss yeah. which historically I associate with people in white trousers in their early 20s right <laughs> I know and it is deeply disturbing that we are the same people that you know when we get together it's just like in the old days where we'd be in a bedroom and we'd talk endless amounts of pretty bad stuff you know i.e. working through ideas to get to a conclusion and it sometimes used to spill out into, into the music press um, but we still go through all that you know we had a huge argument for about three days in the studio about whether we should bring back hanging. You know, and it just went on and on and on and on and on. 
until, you know, James just stormed out and just said, I'm going to go and have some egg and chips. And we're still, this petty nature is just wholly destructive. I think the mistake is saying that the present is kind of lacklustre and empty. It's not always just about then. That doesn't always equate to the past was absolutely wonderful because it wasn't. There were some dire times. And I, I'm not always saying that. It's just my inspirational touchstones were formulated, as most people's are, from the age of 14 to, I don't know, 22, really. But you haven't mellowed with age, in the sense no. that I, you know, when I pick up music magazines, there's an interview with you in them. <laughs> you will be taking pot shots at just as many things as you probably took pot shots at 15 years ago. I know, because there's, at least, there was a time when journalists would do that, but they seem to have been cowered by the whole process as well. Not this one. <laughs> well, I think in musical terms, though, there that has occurred, you know, I mean... The Mr. Angry and the Melody Maker, if anyone remembers that. It was just, <laughs> you know, outright vileness. But it was it Czech bands. Bands are just not checked anymore because they're just completely, you know, we've never been in a bubble. I mean, I still live in Newport. You can't exist in a bubble, in a rock and roll bubble, if you live in Newport in South Wales. Right. right. You just can't. That's what feeds it to some extent. Yeah, definitely. Because the real yeah. world is still revealing itself it's, to you every day. It is, yeah. You know, I just walk around town and, you know, and kind of willfully... It's, 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 it's a badge of honour, you know. I don't want to be walking around there and people saying you're good, because they don't. <laughs> um, you're about to release a definitive, what, 38-track, I think I'm right in saying? Yeah. Maybe more? Greatest Hits compilation. Yeah. And then the Manics will go quiet for a, a long, possibly indefinite period, that's correct. Yeah, I mean, we're definitely, we're not. There's no kind of um, thoughts of splitting up. But it is going to be a huge effort to actually reinvent ourselves for one final time. But this is a milestone. It is. You feel you've reached a, a, a decisive sort of juncture in, I do. in the 20 years you've been around. 20 years, 10 albums on the same label with the same people. Those things just don't seem to happen anymore, do they? Right. You know, they just, bands just don't do that. They take the easy route and think, right, we're absolutely stiffing at the moment. We'll split up, come back in five years' time and just play all the festivals. Why not just do make... that? Well, that is Everybody's the... done it. Blur, Pulp, Suede. All the Britpop bands, you know. So you're not splitting up? No, we're not splitting Which up. would be the most lucrative option. It would. If we said we're splitting up today and then five years' time we came back, then we could headline every festival and make millions of pounds. But we're like the fall. We're like a, like a stadium version of the fall. You know, this relentless work ethic of ups and downs. And um, I kind of we enjoy the failure. I think that's the difference. Failure to us is our chance to kind of get back. And we've had lots of Extreme failure. I mean, Holy Bible might be our best record in a lot of ways and all that. It was out of the charts in two weeks. It was a complete stiff. You know, and then, so then you come back with everything and score with sales a million records. And, you know, there is an element, a, a bizarre and strange moral element of like, some kind of competition in this. That How many times we can do it, I, I'm not so sure. Well, come back, come yes. back from the career doldrums Indeed. kind of thing. Right, yeah. okay. Going back, I mean, listening again to early Mannix music, which I've done a lot in preparation for this. We talk about you being anomalous and an awkward presence now, but you were then. <laughs> I mean, 1990-91, when I first came to see you and spoke to you and so on, yeah. it's easy to forget that Acid House was still the defining part of the culture. Totally. Which everybody was very happy and blissful and wearing very baggy clothes and not talking about anything really of any consequence. No. And then along came these four <laughs> raging <laughs> fellas from South Wales who seemed to hate everything. <laughs> What did it feel like being that anomalous? It, it felt like a really tight bond that gave us strength, but at times it did feel very frightening as well, especially coming to London. I just remember thinking, 
I'm talking to someone here about Guns N' Roses, and they literally have no idea what I'm fucking talking about, you know. They really, they weren't interested in it at all. And um, rock music just didn't exist in any form, really, in the London press. But then again, there's just a real, it's a sign of madness, because we just, we were convinced that we were going to be the one. Acid House and Baggy and Manchester, all that was going on. We were on Total Pops and Leopard Print and Eyeliner and everything, and we were just slayed. I remember we looked at each other and thought, you know, absolutely, we've done it at the wrong time. But it, it's very rare now that groups define themselves against yeah. their contemporaries with the ferocity and regularity that you did. I mean, I've got written down here that famous oh. Richie quote about a group called Slow Dive, who younger viewers won't remember, but <laughs> Slow Dive made music that wasn't really about anything at all, and Richie famously said, we will always hate Slow Dive more than Adolf Hitler. It's just Which terrible, is a great quote. I know. But, but, I mean, to live... I mean, musicians run into each other. You're part of that culture. Did you revel in it or did it make life awkward on occasion? I think we made life awkward for James and Sean, undoubtedly, because they were musicians. And if you look at most of it, it's me and Richie who just made no effort to play but thought we looked amazing. We'd do our homework the night before interviews, write all these scarabous kind of things down and quotes and all that and say we're going to split up after one band. You could see James and Sean thinking... I don't want to split up. I'm just, I'm just starting Famously, to Famously, you said you would split up after your first album. Yeah, you know, and sell 16 million albums and all those things. But we just thought it made us more interesting. There was a kind of... I think one of the key quotes was Malcolm's thing about the fabulous disaster of the Sex Pistols. And that really resonated with us. The idea of... This band are ridiculous, but they do mean it, man. You know, and... Uh, I'm not one of those people who has no regrets. I have lots of regrets because... Myself and Richie said some really willfully antagonistic, terrible things. I mean, the, fir- the first proper single, Motown Junk, which is the first track, isn't it, on this compilation, yeah. does have the line, I laughed when Lennon got shot. You're bringing up all the best Repeatedly. Um, and then a, a Richie line, which he just ex- explained to me that, you know, this has to be year zero. This is Pol Pot. <laughs> and then two years later, I watched you on stage at the Kilburn National Ballroom. You'll know what's coming here. And you said in the season it's of horrendous. Goodwill, let's hope that Michael Stipe goes the same way as Freddie Mercury just, pretty soon. Just, I mean, that is lacking in any intelligence or reason whatsoever. But there was a rationale behind you doing that, wasn't there? I, well, I convinced myself there was a rationale and to the press, but that's why I mean, I, I just look back and, and I just I cringe at my younger self. I cringe at myself today. Because all those terrible thoughts still run through my head constantly, you know. Where's Tom York is buzzing with paranoia and the CIA bugging him and all that? Mine's just buzzing with hatred all the time. And why aren't people noticing this? Why, you know, is it left to me to say all these things? And uh, it's just, it's, it's not a healthy situation. You know, it only goes when I'm sat on a beach, really, in West Wales reading poetry. Richie disappeared, what, 16 years ago now? Mm. And I ask you this because when a Greatest Hits comes out very often... That reawakens the most simplistic view of a group. You know, we're not yeah. talking the nuanced language of albums. You know, yeah. suddenly it's all about singles and all that. I suppose in the public mind, you know, when you get in the taxi or something, Richie's disappearance still defines who the Manics are. Yeah. How do you feel about that? It, I actually, I mean, glory's not the right word, but I just think of him as such an amazing. First of all, as a friend, as someone you play football with and grow up with, go to uni, you know, he's there writing some of my essays because I just couldn't be bothered. All those things are just kind of beautiful private moments, just like he's a son and he's, you know, someone's brother, all those things. But as a band, 
And as him, I just think of him as the most beautiful, slightly unhinged, but yet polite, um, erudite, brilliant lyricist rock star of our decade. You know, I can actually sit back and think, God, wouldn't it have been amazing if he'd been with us when we won Brit Awards and played stadiums and stuff like that? Because he never that, had the platform, really. Is that painful? No, that, I don't that know. sort of counterfactual idea that what if only he had been around? No, I think sad is the kind of melancholia to it, but no, it's not, not so much painful. But I would have loved to see more, you know. He's just such an amazing kind of. I mean, we all know he wasn't that brilliant on stage, but that gap was there. We've just never been the same band live. I think we've reached heights musically and lyrically without him, you know, whether it's design or torrent, whatever. But live-wise, there was just something so magical about that symmetry of us. And that, that's the real sadness. You look on stage, you think, oh, fuck, there's a lot of session musicians. <laughs> you know? Do you think, I mean, as far as the, a lot of the audience is concerned, he's sort of an implied presence still. Yeah. That's true, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is, and that's why the gap's there. You, you know, purposely leave the gap. We do, because there was a, we had another one of our famous arguments that you know we should look like the jam, i.e. drummer, Weller, Foxton, you know. And Jim's like, I'm not fucking doing that. No way am I doing that. Uh, one, it looks shit, and two, you know, it's denigrating towards Richie. So we never did it. What did you learn from Richie, do you think? When I first met you, your view of the world and Richie seemed to be, to be very close. Yeah. But at the same time... Uh, both in terms of what he said, but also the way that he lived, it rapidly became clear that he was going to extremes that you didn't. Definitely. Now, was he going to extremes to some extent on your behalf? In other words, did you learn from that, do you think? I, I remember, post-Holy Bible, I deeply examined this whole question. I really did think, because we didn't know whether we were going to continue. This is after he disappeared. Right. And I just remember thinking, I've probably learned from him that I just can't be him. You know, because I was writing these lyrics the design for life sort of stuff, which is much more social history. And I was thinking, oh, if I turn into Billy Bragg, is this all a bit dour? I thought, should I try something, you know, more like the Holy Bible? And I just looked at it, and it's, it was just a poor imitation of a mind that was much more ferocious and just much more intellectual than I ever was. You know, Do I you was, think when, in the course of first working with him, though, he perhaps made you more ferocious? Did he bring that side of you out to any extent? I think initially... I certainly made him stylistically look a lot better. I mean, when I first went to uni, he was the shambling C86 kid. So you he know. would have had a bowl cut and all half mask jeans. Yeah, and terrible, you know, jumpers with holes in to try and, you know, the fake, fake C86 look. So I think I kind of, we grew up together and we definitely fed off each other in those Kevin Cummins photos when we kiss. And you look at Love Sweet Exile, we're naked, arms around each other, virtually necking each other, which is not something I particularly want to do with anyone it's on youtube if anyone yeah. wants to see that <laughs> yeah um so i think we fed off each other visually but as soon as it came to i knew with the holy bible i just had to stand back it's the biggest regret of all is i had to stop writing lyrics with him in terms of the band not as a friendship thing but it was such an amazing experience to write much like letting us each other i just don't know anyone who does that any other bands mates you know who actually write lyrics together and motorcycle Emptiness, which is probably in your top three most renowned songs, yeah. that was the product of you and him probably sitting at a desk or a it table was. and it was done as a... In my bedroom. Like other it? people might write a poem together. Yeah, it's just a beautiful experience. It really was. Even Faster was, was, was a bit of a co-write and that was probably the last one, really. That's the next question. I mean, just because this Greatest Hits is here, there were three songs that I wanted to talk about. Faster, because it points out what we were talking about before... 
that if you are the last of the line, right, very often people who are the last of the line, it's a sort of fag end thing, you know, things yeah. are dwindling. But if you are the last of the line, <laughs> this whole thing uh, embodied by you has gone out quite spectacularly, right? Because yeah. uh, for someone to be writing a song, the chorus of which says, I am stronger than Mensa, Miller and Mailer, I spat out Plath and Pinter. I mean, the fact the first line is, I am an architect, they call me a butcher. It's Were you aware at the time that, because I was thinking about this on the train here, and without wanting to unnecessarily flatter you, even before you, nobody had written lyrics like that. No, before. I mean, it's, uh, it's a truly extraordinary piece of work. I, I just, the actual goal to say it, I mean, <laughs> it's a pretty unbelievable thing to state in itself, but he was consuming so much, I guess you'd call it culture, but he was just... The amazing thing is it was all pre-digital, so he didn't have the internet or anything. This was literally reading tons of books, buying magazines, listening to music, constantly smoking, constantly typing, this acceleration of culture in his head. It must have been quite scary for him because... But this beautiful form lyric of, I think, you know, I know, believe, I, know I believe in nothing, but it is my nothing. It's just the great catchphrase of that decade. You know... <laughs> That's, like the 90s, that's the 90s epitaph, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. It never feels the same playing it live anymore because it's such a state of mind and you do feel like you're going through the motions a bit because when we used to play it back then and you'd see everyone in their Fred Perry's holding their guitars like this, talking about greyhounds and all that, and we was like, oh, just fuck off. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about a design for life, obviously, as well. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. I mean, A, that's your comeback single... Arguably the single biggest song you've ever, you've ever yeah. put out. I think it's fair to say. Yeah. Again, points up that anomalousness because it's a song about class released in an era when class was completely taboo. Yeah, that was definitely a song driven by rage. It was the first song we wrote after Richie's disappearance. You know, it's pretty amazing in itself, and um, the patronisation of the working class at that point had just got uh, to such a nadir. I just couldn't take it anymore. Hasn't it got worse since? Quite prophetic in that sense. I think the difference was back then, there were still a working class around. I'm not sure if there is anymore, really, in the sense that it was the sort of final remnants, you know, before basically the whole economy was run by the city. You know, it was still slightly different then. We did make the odd thing. And um, I'd, I'd just the way the, the kind of middle or upper classes had, had just toyed with the whole image of it, and it had become, you know just this endless diet of moronity if that's a word <laughs> you know when you play that now I mean you said that with Faster perhaps you feel like you're going through the motions when you play a design for life now and I ask you this because if working class identity was sort of on its uppers somewhat in the mid 90s I don't know where it is now no. does that make it high, more highly charged now or is it does familiarity inevitably breed a degree of contempt I think with Faster we still feel it's just the, the absolute sort of embodiment, maybe, of Richie's intellect. So to play it, it's just hard without him. And then the last song I wanted to ask you about is If You Tolerate This, Your Children Will Be Next. Chiefly because I have a memory of hearing it at Dixon's in Stansted Airport <laughs> and watching all these people go on holiday, sing along to a, a number one single about the Spanish Civil War. Which, I, I, mean, I, don't, I mean, obviously I'd never thought about that because it's such an unlikely prospect, but... Did you feel that at the time? You'd, you'd achieved something uh, deeply unlikely. Yeah, I think there's been a couple, but it's one of our genuine acts of sedition. 
It's my proudest moment as a lyricist. I mean, the lines are awkward. It's a kind of pro-war song. I can't think of any pro-war songs that go to number one. It was the longest ever title to go to number one. And I remember playing it in Inlet because there's a line in it about La Ramblers. And I remember playing it in La Ramblers in Barcelona with 3,000 people singing it. And it's just one of those moments you think, oh, maybe they don't really know, but I think they do. <laughs> If you tolerate this, was your, in the midst of, as the Pet Shop Boys would have it, your imperial phase? Yeah. I mean, that was when you were at your biggest. Yes. Brit Awards and multi-million selling albums. Everywhere, really, apart from America, you know, that we were, whether it's Europe, even Canada, <laughs> it was just North America. What know? did huge success do to you, do you think, you specifically? I mean, in absolutely typical and rather pathetic way, it made me think, oh, my God, we've gone too far, we're too popular. Whereas James and Sean were just thinking, this is brilliant and amazing. I remember going back to my terraced house in um, Wattsville and being outed that, you know, the headline was, why is millionaire rock star living in this house? <laughs> I really like it, yes. I didn't realise it was that bad. An old miner's cottage. So I had to move just down to Newport. It wasn't that far. And... um Money just takes a slightly bit of the stress away, but it's just started eating away, and that's why we did Mass Against the Classes, because, you know, it just... That was totally me, in all honesty. Jims and Sean were like, let's just bask in the glory, and I, and I, and I was just... We did that gig at the Millennium Stadium. To how many people? 62, maybe, 1,066. And even that night, I remember the pettiness of it, because I remember Norman Cook had booked Cardiff Ice Rink, and he was charging like 80 quid for, for the millennium or something. And we did our tickets really cheap, 30 quid a minute. And I, I knew, I found out from the promoter how many he sold. And it, even in front of all that adulation on stage, I had to go and go, yeah, you can go and fuck off and see Norman Cook if you want for the 80 quid. Apparently he's only sold three tickets. <laughs> <laughs> even in the midst of all that, I couldn't contain myself. But masses, I think, you know. Self-sabotage to some extent. And then Cuba, Castro, right. you're starting to think... You know, what are this band on? Uh, are they willfully just kind of um, trying not to be big? And you were. <laughs> I Consciously? Was, yeah. Consciously. I think I was, right. yeah. In the meantime, the political context had totally changed in the sense that you cut your teeth, as I said before, under Mrs Thatcher. Yeah. And you achieved your biggest success really during the Blair era. That's, that's yes. right, the early Blair era. We definitely And were. I remember meeting you occasionally and talking about all this, and you were much more generous towards New Labour than I was. <laughs> Do you still feel like that? No. But I, I compartmentalise into this fact that they undoubtedly threw all the money generated at education and the health service. There's no doubt they had to... To get where we were to where we are now... We, you know, it's no wonder they had to borrow as well as make money. Unfortunately, they did that at the expense, in my opinion. They basically let the city run wild, and all the money that was generated by it, they put, I, I guess you could say, to a good cause, but at the dereliction of any kind of skill or manufacturing base. And, Hence um, the fact there's a song on the last Mannix record called All We Make Is Entertainment. Indeed, yeah. And... Um, I mean, it was a relief. To, I think it was a relief to have new Labour. It was also funny seeing all those bands go in there and us never getting invited, even though we were as big as all of them. Because obviously even then they knew oh, they were a bit too bent to ask them. But you also gave a load of money to Arthur Scargill Socialist Party. We did, yeah. <laughs> Vain attempt. Which is a good way of saying, Tony Blair, I'm not your friend. Yeah. There I are mean, tremendous ambivalences here, aren't there? there I are. mean, your worldview has two aspects to it, doesn't it? The first it is, is a, a quite a raging 
sort of nihilistic revolutionary kind of idea, like a punk rock idea. But at yeah. the same time, you can be politically realistic enough to sit here and say New Labour wasn't all that bad. I think we were political realists, or we've always been political realists. There is a massive dose of, a dose of nihilism, like you said, involved. But the core of us just understands the reality and hypocrisy. Rich, me and Richie used to talk about this all the time. We used to laugh and he'd go, yeah, it's great being a corporate whore, isn't it? You know, and because you just realize it straight away and you just kind of, you know, we always wanted to use the machine. I think we did really successfully. So I, I don't think there's no romantic um, looking back at it. I'm just glad they spent the money in the right places. But, you know, it's ended up in even a greater mess. I think we all realize there's just nothing. Sometimes there's literally nothing you can do in life. Everything sometimes is just fuck. What happens now as far as you're concerned? In the sense that this greatest hits, as you said, marks a milestone. As far as I can tell, your plans, uh, the Manix plans, are uncertain, yeah, unclear. What's the next two, three, four, five years? Hold. I think it's a, it's been a really good opportunity to, to to just clear the decks, and we do work like that as a band. I know James just wants to. James doesn't really want to sing in the band anymore. You know, he wants John Lydon and Morrissey and Nina from the Cardigans to sing song our songs and stuff like that. You know, are you seriously thinking about something like that? Yeah, you know, James is especially because he just, I think he just wants to get pissed and not worry about losing his voice. That's the way we, it's going to have to be like that. You know, it's going to have to. We've always enjoyed doing duets. The Ian McCulloch thing was a massive thrill. So, so all, all options are open. The Manic Street yes. Preachers, when they return, we may not even recognise them. No. You know, I think it's an actung baby moment, you know. And for you, can you conceive of your life post-Manix in any way? That is just really scary, considering we were a band who wanted to split up, you know, after our first album. Basically, they're still only the only real friends I got. <laughs> and um, st we're still deeply obsessed with each other, as well as all music, and politics, books, whatever. For that to disappear is, is really scary. But we can't go on like we are. We can't go on just touring all the time, you know, prolifically making records. Unfortunately. But Manic Street Preachers will prevail. <laughs> we'll survive. Thank you, I thank you very much. Cheers,